a negative way, like prosecuting legally. Um, but here I mean suing the king in terms of petitioning him, requesting him, not just as a person who is his wife, but as the queen. And so she uses her position, her office, her role to sue the king for justice. So she comes to the king. She's made up her mind. The three days of mourning and fasting have ended. I don't know if the king even knew about that because they hadn't seen each other for 30 days, remember? And so Esther approaches the king in royal attire. She must have looked beautiful. And she came before the king already. And she is approaching the king. And as she makes every breath, as she takes every breath, every step toward the king, she knew not what would happen to her. Because the king is, in a sense, unpredictable. She didn't know if she would survive this encounter or not. Because no one who would come uninvited before the king, that's why they had the eunuchs behind him with the sword raised. We can see this from, from historical evidence. The person who was not approved by the king would be taken care of. What courage! And so she comes before the king, and the king favors her. It's a sign of God's hand that this plan of redemption is going to continue. But uh, Esther didn't know how this would pan out. And so she comes before the king, and the king says, and the, the, first of all, the king extends the scepter. Golden scepter, it says. And by touching the scepter in return, it is established that the king welcomes her, approves of her, accepts her to speak to him. So when that point had taken place, I would imagine a big sigh of relief. And the king then wants to know what it is. Why are you here? She placed her life, like I said, in the hands of the king. I would suggest that by faith, she placed her hands in the hands of God. I don't know her understanding. We're not given those details about how much she knew about her own faith. But I have to somewhat imagine, assume that there was enough of that to know that she belonged to a people, the chosen people, the people of Moses, Abram, Aaron, the, the patriarchs. Uh, the people had created a history behind him of the Exodus coming out of the house of bondage and slavery. And that God had a purpose with his people. And that this people would, have, would be the favored people of God. 
because God's favor was not so much the favor that he had in people, as it were, personally, because he thought they were so great, because the majority of them weren't so great. We know that from the Bible as well. But it is his electing purposes, his saving purposes, that he has placed on a people, and through all of their sinfulness and all the twists and turns in their history, he faithfully continues his covenant up to this point as well, where we're about in the fourth, uh, fifth century BC, and we're at this crucial moment. What is going to happen to God's promises? Does God really control history? Is he really in charge of your life, of the Ukrainian people? the Russian soldier, the politicians in Europe meeting as the G20, and they represent such power and resources. Is it not really true that you cannot really put your trust in an invisible God, but what you should put your trust in is what you can see and taste and smell? Well, as Christians, we know, of course, that that is not quite the way to go about it. We know and believe from God's word that God controls his story. History has God as its main actor. And we, as it were, are the witnesses. We are spectators, but somehow involved. But this story is not about Esther, it's not about Haman, it's not about Mordecai, it's about God, the God of Esther and Mordecai. And so the king's response of favor is not just the king's response. It is by God's design and will and purpose that Esther receives a welcome, a warm welcome, if you will, from the king. She touches the scepter and she can stand freely before God and speak her mind. Back to Luther. Luther said that the golden scepter represents the gospel. He liked to spiritualize texts quite a bit. He sometimes, many scholars have said, he sometimes sees things in the text that not quite there. But it's an interesting thought, isn't it, that the scepter here represents the gospel. Because if God is the king and his scepter, the gospel, is extended to you and you touch it in response, what is true of you? You are safe, you are protected. You are guarded. You are in fellowship with the God who holds power over life and death. Not the king, not anybody else, not Haman. God is the Lord of lords and the king of kings. And it is by his declaration that you and I are set free. Free from sin, free from judgment, free from hell. The scepter represents grace. 
And boy, do we need grace. Because if you just look at the scepter in another sense as representing the law, as well as the gospel, but as the law, it represents your judgment. And you stand before God guilty, and you say, I have no way to get where to go. And if you declare me guilty, God, and I must perish in everlasting damnation, it is so, as we will see from the canons in a moment. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's no one who is righteous, not even one. The wages of sin is death. That's all our plight. So the king invites her to speak. I see that as a beautiful insight. It's a kind of a peripheral insight, but I see it as an insight in which we can apply it to ourselves and say, I can come before the king anytime I want because I'm free. I don't have to fear his judgment. His wrath has been removed from us. The father, king, is waiting for me. He loves me. He holds me on his heart. Every moment. Because he loves me so much. Because he gave his son for me. So that I can speak to him. I can cry out to him. I can praise him. I can petition him. And so what is it Esther? Well Esther has thought about this. This beautiful young woman. Now the Persian king's wife. Queen, I'm sure, has thought about this, and she has a plan. And the plan is to approach the king, and should she survive, then she'll tell the king if he and Haman would come to her palace on her side. Crazy way they did it in those days, right? The separating of husband and wife coming together as husband and wife, maybe whenever the king pleases. I don't want to be married that way. But that's how it was. And so you have a king who has invited his wife and welcomes her and approves of her. And then he says, what is it that you want? And she says what she said, come to my banquet today. And he and the Haman come to that. And then on that occasion, the king again asks uh, his wife, what is it? I'll give you half my kingdom. It's kind of an exaggerated phrase. Bible commentators think, like not to be taken too literally. Just a way to express his largesse, his generous spirit uh, towards his favor towards this person. So, so she says, well, tomorrow come back and come to my banquet um, and I'll tell you. So Sounded good. And Haman thought it was great. I mean, Haman, um, everything is going well for him, he thinks. And that leads me to the final thought. Haman's doom anticipated. Because who is Haman in this story? So far, from what we have heard about Haman, I may be wrong, but I get the sense that this is a person who thinks that everything is about him. It's all about him. And when he becomes insecure, people in leadership who are insecure, by the way, are dangerous. 
Haman is very important. He is the prime minister of the country, second in command, if you will. And this person, his sense of stability and identity and confidence is thwarted by one person. This Mordecai, who in God's providence, we don't know why exactly, sits at the king's gate. And every time he comes in to see the king and every time he leaves the palace to go to his house, there is Mordecai. And he hates Mordecai. He hates his guts because everybody else is bowing down on their knees, touching the ground like they do in the Middle East still. And Mordecai won't do it. He refuses it. He hates Mordecai. And he tells the family at home, his wife, and friends, all the successes that he has accomplished, but this Mordecai, he bugs me. He's a thorn in my flesh. And his advice, the advice that he receives from his wife and friends is that they, they, he ought to build a gallows to hang him on it. And then ask the king for that approval tomorrow morning after breakfast. And the uh, king will probably approve that. And then just go and have yourself a good time at the king's palace with Queen Esther. And by the way, that gallows, as it is translated gallow, is possibly translatable also as tree. So when you think about gallows, commentators suggest we can think about the imagery of a cross. And so if he were hanged, he may have been hanged like people are hanged, but it could also be possible that he was impaled. Whichever way it is, he has this huge, extraordinarily high structure built for Mordecai. But it's not going to turn out that way, is it? We're going to read about that in chapter 7, particularly, and 8. Because he is digging a hole, he's digging a grave for Mordecai, and as we know already, he's going to be the one who falls into it. God is in charge of all the steps of this story as it unfolds. The doom is anticipated. But all the events as small and detailed as they are in themselves, but when you put them together, God is working at delivering his people. Haman, the ancient Himmler, architect of the final solution, Nazi Germany. This is an ancient variety of that. Haman, architect of the mass death of all the Jews. He's a pathetic person. He needs to be comforted by his wife and friends and reassured. And by the way, I find it so ironic that in the opening chapters, there's this great concern that the women will overtake the men. Right? Let's make sure that the women obey their husbands. 
And now the most powerful person besides the king in the whole country, the whole empire, is leaning, crying like a baby to his wife and, and friends that he's so upset. And then from the voice of this woman, verse 13 in chapter 6, I believe, not everybody of my colleagues or, or friends have, have said yes to this, but I think that from the structure point of view, there's a chiastic structure here. Because you see the fall being mentioned in the beginning, and then the line of Zeresh that says that if he is a Jew, you will not be able to conquer. And then it mentions a falling again. You will fall. That's a Hebrew construct in which the parallel of the fall is there at the beginning and the end. And then the heart of it is at the center. It tells you the story that you are doomed. You are meeting somebody that you cannot conquer. He is going to conquer you. He's your nemesis. He's doomed. Haman is doomed. And as we see, right after his wife had said that to him, if Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but you will surely fall before him. Verse 14, while they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. All of a sudden, all his happiness, all his contentment, all his excitement is gone. Because now he is uncertain. Now he doesn't know what will happen next. The words of his wife reverberating in his ears, you have begun to fall. What a banquet that was. Just those three. Kind of weird, huh? Big banquet. Probably just those three. Well, what is the lesson? Well, the lesson is probably a number of lessons. The one is, of course, that, that we, because now we say the so what question. What about you and me? When we meet our trials and the difficulties where we have to make decisions sometimes. And we don't know which way to go and we're afraid. How do we proceed? Well, I don't know of any other way than by faith. Because my God is still my God. He is sovereign. He is in control. He is all-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere present. He is the one who has committed to me. He has committed himself to me on oath by the covenant Sealed in blood of his own son. He is always with me no matter what I will go through. And I can step forward by faith. Have courage that if I die, I die. But I know that I have a mission. I have a commission to tell the world about this God and his grace for sinners. And that in his son there is deliverance for Jew and Gentile both. And as we think as Christians about what the words of the Lord Jesus were in his uh, famous prayer in John 13. He says, I in them and you in me. 
so that they may become perfectly one, that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Jesus says to his friends, to us, the church today, I have overcome the world. I have overcome evil. I have overcome those who do evil. And there are people today who do evil. They do evil to children. They do evil to the unborn. They do evil to you know, the masses of people across this world. But they don't have the final say. Because they are doomed. Because there has come one who has overcome the world. And one day there will be justice. One day there will be the, the day of, a, of reckoning. And one day the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth. And until then you are called and I am called to trust my heavenly father because I don't place my hands in the United States government I don't place my confidence in social security uh, as wonderful as all these things are but I place my hands in the hands that were pierced for me on the cross where my guilt my just condemnation was removed from me taken away from me and placed on another the Lord Jesus Christ. So we go from here. We're going to go back into God's world. It's his world. He's placed his claim on this world because Jesus redeemed it by his blood. So be people of hope. Be people of courage, of confidence that we are not strong in ourselves because we are nothing. We are weak. But he is strong and we find our strength in him and in his life that he earned for us sinners on the cross. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this portion of your word, and we pray that your Holy Spirit will further apply it to our lives. Help us to see, Lord, very practically in the week that is before us where we, where we are called to, 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 uh, to show our trust in you, to, to know what to say or what to do when we face a difficult circumstance. To by faith trust you that even if we perhaps made a choice or decision that we're just not even confident about ourselves, our lives are still in your hands and you graciously govern and guide us and you always accomplish your goal and your purpose with us and through us until we see that fulfilled when we stand before you without fear and with great joy. Amen.